This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm Lucy Dunn, the Spectator's social media editor, and today I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Kate Andrews. So the big story of today that everyone's focusing on is the second round of NHS England Junior Doctors' Strikes that are taking place from 7am this morning to 7am on Saturday, so that's 96 continuous hours of strike action, and the junior doctors are looking for a 35% pay rise and better working conditions. Fraser, what do you think of what's going on just now? I think this exposes the problem the government's got trying to respond to this. And being a doctor is not an underpaid position. And the strange thing about Britain is that we're quite generous in that we subsidise doctor training quite a lot. Uh, for example, you could say that junior doctors get paid a lot more in Australia. Well, they, that may be the case. But by the time they finish the training, they've spent a lot. They're way more in debt than they are in this country. So in the UK, we've tried to have this quid pro quo that when people are undergoing medical training, they don't pay that much. They then get paid not very much from the junior doctors, but then fairly quickly they get on a fairly decent salary scheme, they can take outside work, and they end up with a, with a decent pension as well. Uh, the, the dip being um, the junior doctor years. Now, of course, you can look, if you want to isolate just the pay of junior doctors, you can say that yes, in the NHS, they are paid a lot less than their comparators. But the government, rather than saying, well, let's look at the whole picture, let's look at the debt you've got, let's look at your um, likely whole career trajectory, the government struggles really to, to try to say that they think, think this is an unfair comparison. Um, and as a result, you, you get the for saying, for example, that they have been given a real terms pay cut. I think the vast majority of people in this country have seen their um, salaries rise a lot less than inflation. So this is true for everybody. To ask for a 35% increase is perhaps a little bit punchy. And then the other effect is that there's a limited amount of NHS resources and the NHS itself is in crisis. So this is a, a, a difficult situation. And I think that the government, rather than trying, because I think there is a rational way of saying to the junior doctors, like, let, let's look at your, your, your lifetime pay structure and the training and, and take that into account. The government's simply sort of stonewalling, not wanting to get into the debate at all. Now, that appears to be how they've handled most of the strike actions, to be honest. And Rishi Sunak wants to be seen as steely. He wants to be seen as not giving way here. Uh, on the radio this morning, we had some really quite heartbreaking um, stories from, uh, from a woman who was expecting to get an important diagnosis when she met the doctor. She'd been waiting six months for that appointment. Now she's going to have to wait a lot longer. It could well be that the junior doctors struggle to carry as much public sympathy as some of the other people who've been striking. But we'll see. We're only on day one of, I think, of a four-day strike. And Kate, there are, there's new polling out today by um, Ipsos that suggests that 54% of people back the walkout um, and public support for the junior doctors' strike, it seems, has increased slightly. But do you see that this public support for the strike action will continue? Do you think it's likely that the public will remain as sympathetic to the strike action compared to how they felt towards nurses and ambulance workers? It will be interesting to follow because health workers, whether they're doctors or nurses or ambulance workers, do tend to have much more public sympathy than a lot of other sectors. And for understandable reason, I mean, even just looking at the past few years with the COVID crisis, it's clear that a lot of medical staff, you know, had a really difficult time of it. And But there's 
a lot of difficulty around this strike. I mean, asking for 35% pay increase, we're talking about a comical request being put in by the doctors. Um, and, you know, it, it would be funny if it weren't for the fact that people's lives are on the line. And, you know, there has been um, some revelations today about internal documents um, exposed from the NHS about what they expect to have happen. And they think up to 350,000 operations will have to be canceled over the next four days. We are not talking about mild, you know, kick the can down the road, no problem kinds of operations. They're worried about cesarean births being canceled. This will not just be women who are opting for them. And frankly, I think they should be able to do that. That's still quite serious. But we could be talking about people whose whose lives are being put in danger. And I find it interesting the extent to which actually um, the NHS Confederation is being honest about this. Their chief, Matthew Taylor, has said explicitly, like, patient safety is on the line. They're not pretending otherwise. You cannot credibly say at this point that patients' lives aren't being put at risk. Once again, they were saying to the public, you know, it's on you, change your behavior. We've heard this all through COVID. We're hearing it now. Somehow it's the public's responsibility to stay home. And a four-day strike after a bank holiday weekend is so long and frankly so egregious. You, you, I, I will be very curious to see if the dial moves on that public support because nobody in their right mind can possibly think they're getting a 35% pay increase. This is not like a credible, in my opinion, it's not a credible cause for going on strike. Um, It doesn't seem like they want to compromise very much here. And so to then walk out for four days and put people's lives on the line like this, I mean, with a public body like the NHS, I think a lot of people enjoy the fact that they're considered public servants within it. How can you credibly call yourself a public servant if you're not showing up for your patients for so many days in a row? You know, I I think we all need to be a little bit more honest about what's going on here. As Fraser pointed to, like, even for junior doctors, the pension payouts from the employer are absolutely massive. There is a reason that the lifetime allowance was lifted to keep more doctors in the profession. It is a well-paid profession. And whilst a lot of people, myself included, think that the UK is not terribly generous to its junior doctors and should be a bit better, these demands and going about it in this way I think it's it's just fundamentally dangerous. It's still striking to see that the poll show most people um, sympathise with them, though. The majority. Yeah, the the, the slim majority. But I imagine that's because lots of people will wish that they were beginning a pay rise right now. I mean, I imagine when you're looking at this, you're thinking, you know, I I could inflation's 10%. How many people really have been given a a 10% pay rise? So part of, I think, a lot of people, part of them will be wishing well on anybody who's trying to to score a goal for, um, for, for trying to keep up with inflation. But then again, the NHS structure is such that so much of it isn't paid. If you were to give that 35% pay rise, that would leave a lot less money for, for operations. But Lucy, I should turn the tables on you here because you were trained as a junior doctor and then decided to come and join us here as a journalist of a spectator. Did you look at being a junior doctor and thinking... I know that just looks too too much. I definitely enjoyed being at medical school and I love being in the hospitals. I think what I would say and what I've seen with my peers particularly um, is that the lifestyle of a junior doctor, particularly in your first couple of years, is, is quite tough. And I think that I wonder if perhaps more could be done in terms of the rota and the hours that they work and the types of shift patterns that they work and if whether that could be incorporated into this negotiation about how to improve the quality of life for junior doctors. You'll still be in touch with a few people I imagine you trained with who are right, right now are junior doctors. So, so I, I, when you chat to them, what, what are the kind of constraints which which do they feel they were operating on? 
I think they find it really difficult with the level of um, night shifts they have to do, for example, in a row. Um, a lot of people, I know from Scotland anyway, that they have to work um, four 12-hour shifts in a row. And it's very common knowledge, by the time you get to your second or last night shift, you're kind of going off pure, pure adrenaline more than anything else. You can't even think through decisions. This isn't good for patient safety in any way at all. So I think that definitely should be examined and looked at. And I actually do think that if the rota was sorted out, then I think the, the pressure to, to restore pay or to, to, to up the pay um, would, would be diminished. It, it strikes me that the British Medical Association and, and plenty of parts of the NHS haven't taken full responsibility for the fact that we do have a, a crisis in this area. I mean, it is completely understandable to me that junior doctors do decide to go abroad because the lifestyle, the pay is so much better. And unfortunately, you know, we, we've just had an NHS for so long that has defended the system, refusing to listen to any kind of critique or criticism. And Lucy, it's always struck me that that has hurt the medical professionals as much as it's hurt the patients. I mean, albeit in a different way. But, you know, we should have been discussing a long time ago, like the strains on the NHS. And I feel like we only discuss them, you know, when it's almost politically useful to do so. Because in any other circumstance to discuss any issue with the NHS has just been considered to be blasphemy. I don't know, um, Kate, did you watch that BBC um, drama, This Is Going To Hurt, you know, when Ben Melmushaw played the role of the junior doctor? Yes. And you've seen that as well. But when you're looking at it, you are basically, I guess there's two ways of looking at it. And most people would have seen it as a, as a funny uh, comedy, as intended as a comedy. Most people as well would have been just horrified at some of these situations because we know they are based on facts, that, that the operations which he has to do when he's absolutely exhausted. Now, when I looked at that, I, I, I found it only later that I read it very differently to a lot of my, my, my friends. Most of my friends thought, oh, junior doctors, are, it was terrible how hard they're paid, look what they've got to do. To me, I saw this as almost an advert of NHS dysfunctionality, that anybody should be put in that position, that we are asking the doctors to do this. It just didn't seem humane, it didn't seem safe, it just seemed appalling to put them through it. So my point here is that I do very much sympathise with what doctors are asked to do, but I don't see how giving them more money is I think that's just part of it uh, I, I do think that the, you, the overall package should be decent I mean there, everybody knows there are careers where you don't get paid much in your early years but you get paid a lot and as Kate says the reason why we're having to lift the the pensions contribution cap is mainly to get the doctors back in very other prof- few few other professions are encountering this pensions cap because very few of me managed to save so much money over their careers so I would like this, this strikes to be an opportunity where people can discuss the working conditions for junior doctors. I think that has to be part of it. It seems a shame to reduce all of this down to a 35% pay demand, which realistically nobody thinks they're going to get. Um, do you think that the government should be doing more to engage with the junior doctors? Do you think that there should be more of a conversation going on there from their end? Yeah, I'm a little disappointed about this. There's so many more intelligent ways of dealing with this than simply stonewalling and saying no. Um, for example, we know how much um, NHS nurses get when you include the pension because the government actuaries department has done the calculation for them but for nobody else. So thanks to that, we know that the average nurse in Britain has got a package of £50,000 and London at £60,000. And that's when you include the huge chunk of their package which is in pension. It can be as much as 20% and sometimes even more than that. Now, I think of at least to a conversation as to why that should be the case. Why shouldn't nurses, like most people, be able to say, actually, I would rather take more of my pay as salary and less of it as pension. 
because 20% is a ridiculously high amount. So I think the government could be opening that kind of conversations, as well as talking about the hours and these night shifts and the other strains which people are, are put down on. So I think Rishi Sunak is playing the hardball card here. But there were other cards at his disposal which he's chosen not to play. And I think it's a shame because we do need to have a big, big conversation in this country about how the NHS is run and how doctors are looked after or not. I completely agree that we have to have those difficult conversations. And I also think that there's maybe more clever public policy that we could engage with here when it comes to all the points that Fraser's just um, highlighted. That said, I'm slightly more sympathetic to the government playing hardball here. Ryan Bourne from the Cato Institute, uh, which is a think tank over in the States, tweeted out a Nigel Lawson quote a few days ago, which I had forgot about. And it's so good, where Nigel Lawson basically says, you never need to worry about Tories and their opinions on tax cuts. You have to worry about Tories and their opinions on public spending. And like how acute those words are over the past few years. Sunak isn't just dealing with the BMA and all host of sectors that are asking for public sector pay raises in line with inflation, or in this case, 35%, much, much higher. He's dealing with the Tory party that would love to keep splashing the cash. You know, I think this 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 hardball, there is not money to do this. If you want the money to do this, tell me the billions upon billions of pounds that you're cutting to cover these pay increases and the pensions that go with it, and until you do, you're not getting it, is a message that not just the public sector needs to hear, but his own MPs need to hear. So yes, I agree that like in the medium term, Fraser, we need to do a lot more to make this sustainable. But in terms of just sort of the short term, like we can't keep spending cash like this. Frankly, I I am more sympathetic to the government's line on this. So just to move on to talking about the IMF, um, Kate, new figures have come out for the IMF today. Can you talk us through um, what these show? Yes. uh, Well, the IMF has published its new World Economic Outlook projections just very recently, just a few hours ago. And it is not good news for the UK, but it's not horrible news either. They've revised its economic forecast for the UK's growth projections up ever so slightly from a contraction that they predicted of 0.6% this year to a contraction now of 0.3%. So this would still suggest that the UK is going into a mild recession, but not as bad as they had predicted six months ago. So not great news, Lucy, but, you know, in theory, I guess, moving in the right direction. Of course, uh, many will point to the forecasts that are taking place much closer to home from the Office for Budget Responsibility, the Bank of England, which no longer thinks the UK will enter a recession this year, a bit more optimistic. But none of this stuff is great news. I mean, we're still talking about extremely stagnant growth, if not slight contraction. What I found interesting about the IMF's report is that it now thinks that Germany is also going to enter an an economic contraction this year, a recession, two consecutive quarters of of contractions. Previously, the the UK was going to be the only major economy that that was going to see a contraction. So it's making quite clear that times are tough across the board. And the other interesting thing about the report is it thinks that interest rates are going to go back to something like pre-COVID levels, I very much hesitate to say normal because those are not normal interest rates. They were ultra low. And, you know, the IMF is raising questions about what that could mean. Would it be easier for governments to borrow again, all the rest of it? And that's leading to questions this afternoon about whether or not that could realistically happen, but also whether or not it should happen. Because, you know, having interest rates that low, having that kind of access to cheap money has caused a lot of problems, which we've come to discover over the past few months. And whether or not that's actually a healthy place to keep interest rates for a long period of time, I think is now a hotly contested issue given the problems that it's created. 
I like to think that anybody can consult the Spectator Data Hub um, for the full picture. I mean, we're never that far. We'd like to say we're pretty much ahead of it. There was an update from Deutsche Bank today, which um, struck me because I think they're slightly ahead of the um, of the others. They are a bit more optimistic. They're about half a percentage point ahead. They expect stagnation this year, no recession, and a return to growth um, next year. If this isn't a good story, um, I have to say that it's one of the things which I think is really important is that we are... Our post-COVID recovery economically is like the worst pretty much in the developed world. That is because our workforce, in my view, is not coming back anything near as likely. If you're basically paying 13% of your working age population to be now to work benefits, you're never going to use the full potential of your society. I'm a little bit frustrated that nobody seems to be joining the dots and working out that our economy is growing slowly because we're nowhere near using our human potential because our welfare system remains dysfunctional with reform coming nowhere near fast enough. Um, so I'll keep on, you know, banging this lonely drum. But uh, I, I do think that, you know, w- what do we expect? If our workforce has had the worst recovery in the developed world, then of course our economy is going to have the worst recovery pretty much in the developed world. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Kate. And thank you for listening. For all our listeners to this podcast, join Fraser Nelson, Katie Bowles and The Daily Telegraph's Camilla Tomini for a live Coronation Coffeehouse Shots special on the 10th of May. This will take place at the Emmanuel Centre and they'll discuss what the historic coronation of King Charles III will mean for the United Kingdom.